as we look about and think about Jesus, we've been talking all about Jesus. I mean, we want to see different sides of Jesus, so think about him maybe in some different ways. If you've ever noticed, he seems to have a kind of an adversarial relationship with the Old Covenant. He's constantly saying, well, you've heard it said this, but I say this. Or he'll be challenged with something about the, from the Old Covenant, and he'll go, yeah, but this is what's really going on, and he would teach something else. And you wonder, you know, what Jesus' problem was. Yet, however, in Matthew 5... Put on my glasses. Yeah. <laughs> in verse, somebody read Matthew 5, 17 through 20 for us and think about what, what Jesus and his attitude about the covenant. Who's got that, Matthew 5? I got it. Go for it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, hello. All right. Chapter 5. Jesus is just getting started. All right? Just getting started with his ministry. We got the whole Sermon on the Mount kind of thing going here. And he talks about how much he loves the law, respects the law, do not take anything out of the law. And then in verse 20, he just kind of sneaks in this slam on the Pharisees. And he's been talking about the Old Covenant and the law. But then he, he says, well, this is what I'm really talking about. That could give us a clue as to even why Jesus brought this up. Why do you think he would even bring this subject up? Yeah, go ahead. As, as you're going to get your one comment here right at the very beginning. Is that what you're saying, Jim? <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> as a balance to not rely on the law for righteousness. Okay, as a balance. All right, any other thoughts? See, I see him tacking on this thing of the Pharisees. He's actually, I think, responding to challenges from the Pharisees. When you understand who these guys were and what they were all about, and I think they were accusing Jesus of trying to abolish the law, accusing Jesus of going beyond the law, etc., so on and so forth, which we're going to see later. There are a lot of times that this was not going to be the only time this issue is brought up. And then Jesus says, your righteousness has got to surpass that of these guys. Your righteousness. And so if Jesus doesn't have a problem with the law, he's got a problem with the Pharisees. Okay, now who are these guys? Uh, the, the term Pharisee is a Greek word. It comes from this Hebrew word that means the separated ones. Okay, that's basically what it's not clear whether they gave themselves that name or everybody else gave them that name, and over a span of a few hundred years, it kind of became, that's what they were called. That's kind of like the term Christian for us. Disciples didn't give themselves that name. They just called themselves disciples, which didn't really work unless you knew the context from which they were talking. Because anybody else walking along, he's a disciple of what? Right? You know, but, the, but the, each other they knew. 
But when the communities started figuring out, they started having more impact, then they made a more specific name up for them. They're the Messiah people. They're the Christ Christians. They're the ones who follow the, 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 the Messiah. And then that's where that name came. But over the years and the centuries, the Christians said, yeah, that's who we are. And then that became a name. It could have been that way with the Pharisees. Historians widely agree, though, that, that they became, the Pharisees came as a separatist faction. That's how it started. Not this religious order of super you know, leaders, but uh, a factious order. Probably began during the Maccabean War. A lot of the Maccabean War had to do with keeping all the Gentiles or Hellenistic or the Greek uh, influences into the church. Keeping it out. Keep those outsiders out. We are pure. We are Jewish. We are whatever. There was wars fought over it. And this group of Pharisees kind of came up in that environment. To them, conformity to anything that was not considered Jewish, pure, was abhorrent. We could not be allowed. They would get violent. They were military. They would even attack their own people if they perceived they were leading Israel astray. Now you take that and then that group, you know, it solidifies, it becomes an official thing and then they become experts and then they become blah, 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 blah and it grows into what we have when Jesus comes along. So they're doing this and uh, here's Jesus Except for a certain mindset, you could understand. You could look at these guys, these Pharisees, this group, of which Paul was one. That's why we even see Paul. He's so dynamic for Jesus. He was just as dynamic for the Jewish way. Right. It was part of his character. It was part of his personality. It's one of the reasons why he made such a great apostle and missionary. Because he was just zealous as a general rule. And so he just got it aimed in the right direction. But you could see these guys, and you could see why people respected them. I mean, they're the super Jews, okay? They're the real, those guys got it going on. I mean, we're all just trying to live our lives. Those are the real serious ones. They would be seen as the arbiters of the Jewish faith. There's not another handout up here if you're looking for one, but yeah, okay, all right. They kept to themselves socially, theologically. They kept them apart from uh, certainly uh, 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 the, the, the Roman rule, etc. These were the people that Jesus constantly had conflict with. And I don't know as much as sometimes we accuse them as they didn't like Jesus because Jesus was getting more popular with them and they didn't like that or whatever. I think they genuinely, just like Saul, genuinely in his heart goes, this is destroying our faith. And that's what they were uh, talking about. In the Gospels, they're mentioned nearly 90 times, and it's almost always in conflict with Jesus. This is where he lived. Um, the, the Gospel writers talk about different things with them and their hypocrisy. Of the Gospel writers, who do you think was the hardest on the Pharisees? Who do you think? Just No, Gospel writers. <laughs> Why Matthew? Okay, what? He was he was talking to Jews, yeah, but why else? Yes. He was a tax collector who worked for the Romans to collect money from the Jews, which would be double bad to the Pharisees. I think he had a long, hard history with the Pharisees. 
okay? I mean, get along with the Romans, that's bad enough. Work for them, that's really bad. You take my money and give it to them? Oh, <laughs> yeah. And so the first, guy, first time we hear about them is from Matthew. It's in chapter 3, verse 7 through 10. It's actually not Jesus having a conflict with these guys. It's John having a conflict with these guys. Okay, somebody read 7 through 10 for me of Matthew 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay. There seems to be a little history here. <laughs> Something. This is probably not the first time John has met up with the Pharisees either. There has meant to be a long-running conflict between these two. Because when they walk up, he immediately calls them a bunch of snakes. All right. And he says, and don't give me all of this where Abraham's descendants business. He's probably heard that one before. And what was Jesus' attitude with John? Do we remember? How did Jesus feel about John the baptizer? Pretty high praise. He go, Jesus, the Son of God, is saying, there ain't nobody born of a woman better than that guy. So, Jesus, John, they were all kind of set up as adversaries, if you will, of the Pharisees. Matthew 11, uh, that's where he says that, Matthew 11, 11. Um, in Matthew 5, we just read it, he, Jesus himself says, your righteousness has got to surpass that of the Pharisees. In Matthew 9, in one of Jesus' first dialogue with the Pharisees, they begin to criticize his disciples. They criticize him for eating with sinners, okay, tax collectors. And uh, they're also for failing to fast regularly. Uh, again, that's basically not respecting the separation, the holiness needed by God's people. They're not respecting our ways. And then they conclude at the end of that chapter in verse 34 that Jesus must not be of God. Jesus must be of Satan. Okay, so the battle lines are clearly drawn here. In Mark chapter 2, we have a very similar story. Jesus is uh, criticized for his disciples because they're going through the grain fields, right? And uh, verse 23, they're going through the grain fields, and as they walk, they pick some of the heads of grain. The Pharisees look, they're doing what is unlawful. And then Jesus goes back and cites David as an example of why this is okay. To the Pharisees, see, this is just another proof that, you know, you're of Satan. And he goes back and cites David. Why would he go back and cite David? Who is David to these guys? The man. The greatest king we've had ever. You know, he, he's, he's the one as seen as and they've had a lot of kings, but he was the best. We're going to restore this. So he goes back to David. Now, we're going to talk about an interesting connection with David right now. All right? There's a problem with David if I'm a Pharisee. <laughs> All right? 
David was a beloved king, number one representative of the nation of Israel. But he offers a slight problem for those who want to adhere to an extremely strict interpretation of the law. Because David himself doesn't seem to actually hold to that. There are three basic structures on which the Ark of the Covenant was put. Okay? What are those three basic structures that the Ark was set in? Ten Commandments. Okay, the Ten Commandments were actually put in the Ark. Oh, I'm talking about where were the ark? Who, what housed it? <laughs> the tabernacle. The tabernacle. The temple. Yeah, the tent. Tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. Okay, just to let you know. Yeah, tabernacle is a fancy word for tent. Okay, it's a fancy tent. Shiloh. <laughs> Which is where the tabernacle was held. There was a third place. And it's interesting, before a week and a half ago, I'd never heard of it before. Yeah, I got had lunch with a couple of evangelists this week. They'd never heard of it before. I asked our own Larry Clip this morning. He'd never heard of it before. Let's look at it. It's called the Tent or Tabernacle of David. Exactly. Let's look at this. If you ever think about, guys... The tent, the first tabernacle, all of this stuff, this happens with Israel. They're roaming around in the desert. They're doing their thing. They can't go into the promised land, so they're roaming for 40 years. They got this whole God's presence thing going on in the tabernacle. Then they finally get to go into Israel, okay? Finally get to head on in. They're conquering places. They're doing all of this stuff. And then they start setting up shop. And we have this period of time called the judges, right? Period of just the judges. Right. This thing lasts for a little over 300 years. A lot of the times we don't think about something lasting 300 years. Imagine what can happen in 300 years. Just think of our country, which has not been a, you know, a country, uh, a nation for 300 years yet. But think of all the social, ethical, economic, religious, cultural shifts that have happened in our country. What can happen in 300 years? Where's the tabernacle? What's going on? We don't hear a whole lot about it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I just kind of think, we, we, we kind of tend to think, well, there's Jerusalem and stuff, but Jerusalem wasn't the capital. There really wasn't a capital. Right. We don't think in these terms because we think, of, well, Jerusalem is kind of the headquarters thing. But for 300 years, nothing. Right. The tabernacle of David happened in a brief period of time, somewhere in that 300 years, brief, somewhere in there more likely it happened basically between the time David became king and the temple was built there was this third place it was created by David and he moved the ark of the covenant of Moses when he David said I'm setting up my capital in Jerusalem and we're going to build a tent there the other one stayed in Shiloh well it was in Shiloh then the Philistines attacked they stole the ark remember that we talked about that last week as long as they had the ark Bad stuff happened to them, right? It was not a good scene. Uh, so they decided we're giving it away. They sent it on out. It went on to Gibeon. It went on into Kiriath, Jerim, all of these other things. Uh, the ark, you know, because they didn't want it. David sets up this other tabernacle. The ark of the covenant, that box, that was the most important thing. Because that was actually represented the presence of God. Wherever the ark was, God was. 
and things were awesome. But then David becomes king. He decides to move the ark to a tent set up in Jerusalem. I'm going to show scriptures about this in a second. Called the Tabernacle of David. First Chronicles 16 talks about this. He does not return it to the Tabernacle of Moses. Now, the Ark of the Covenant is now in Jerusalem. According to 1 Chronicles 16, verses 37 through 40, evidently all the sacrifices are still happening at the other tabernacle. Because that's where the high priests are. Although the Ark is not there, they're making sacrifices. We do have David making some sacrifices in general when they move the Ark into Jerusalem. But basically we don't have a description of those types of sacrifices for sins and all of that kind of stuff happening in David's tabernacle. What we have is all of these psalms that David is saying things like, I'm coming into your presence. I want to see your face. I come into the presence of the Lord. And it never dawned on me, how can you do that? You're not a high priest. You're not allowed in that room. And that would be a hard thing for a king to deal with. But in Psalm 27, uh, verses 6 through 9, Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surrounded me. As, I sacri- uh, as his sacred tent, I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call. Be merciful on me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Don't hide your face from me. Don't turn your servant uh, away in anger. Uh, you have been my helper. Don't reject me or forsake me. Again, we got David. I can't go. I can't even go in. But now, what we see in this ark or this tabernacle of David, you can go in. The ark is just there. There is no mention of a holy of holies. It's not a replica of Moses's tabernacle. And all the language starts changing. He starts using phrases like a sacrifice of praise. He starts using these types of of language as he talks about coming into God, into this place, this tabernacle. It had full free access to God. Now, we do see when he starts to move it, remember, then Uzzah comes up and he touches it and he falls dead. And David goes, yikes, okay, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. So he he sends a a tabernacle to this guy's house, Obed-Edom's house. Go over there. And for like three or four months, this guy just prospers like crazy. And Dave goes, okay, maybe God's not mad that we moved the tabernacle. Maybe he was just mad that the dude touched it. Let's go ahead and, because God wasn't angry that the tabernacle was taken out of the tabernacle. I mean, the ark was taken out of the tabernacle of Moses. That wasn't the problem. So after that, he goes ahead and he moves it on into Jerusalem. Yes, ma'am. How the ark was supposed to be repaired and used. Right. They're using oxen and stuff instead of the Levites. Well, I, yeah, and I don't even know if it was the oxen or whatever. I, I, I do think you're right. And the fact is, he said, don't touch it. Yes. And the dude touched right. it. Okay. Right. And I've seen that in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. You don't need, you know, you don't open it, you don't touch it. I've seen that. But, and, and, and stuff is, but the thing is, is, once they moved it over to Obed-Edom's house, God started blessing again, everything was good again, and then he moved it into Jerusalem and everything was okay. Okay, yes ma'am, what are you saying? Okay, so we're just here having our own little dialogue. Of course, <laughs> so unusual. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. Okay, so that arcing thing, yeah. that was a representation of God. 
Right. Yeah. He couldn't do that. Yeah. That is right. evidently not. Well, I'm, yes. Nobody could, yeah. We always get like, hey, he's going to hell. I know. Yeah, but. Yeah, and how do I know? He may have gone to heaven. He may have. God said, okay, you're going to die, but you know what? You were trying to help. And I have grace and mercy. I don't know what happens. I'm not judging the guy. I just know he's dead. Guys, that's not the point of the story, though. And we move on. Bring it back. In the the tabernacle of David, evidently, everybody could come into God's presence. That doesn't mean they can touch it, but they can come into God's presence. Many of the Psalms were written for worship in the tabernacle of David. Understanding before that, only priests, only different, these were the only ones allowed to do any of this thing. David's tabernacle made sacrifices of praise, as we see in Psalm 27. They clapped. The first time we hear about this stuff, clapping of their hands, they're so liberal, lifting up their hands in worship. They shouted. They danced. You know, they played instruments, which they had some instruments before, but then, you know, this is the first time we see it as a, as a, as a corporate organized thing. In day, it's like a church service. And, and David says, you know, when he would be in the depths of sin and depression and down, he goes, then I came into your house or your temple. Or this was before there was a physical temple. Then I came here. Then I'm with the assembly. Okay? It was a different, evidently, type of setup. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for the acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. All of these, praise him with the sound of trumpet, with harps and lyre. Praise him with tremble and dancing, training with strings and the pipe. We don't have all those instruments, but we do what we can. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. They were evidently free to enter the temple, stand before the ark, and offer their sacrifices of praise. Still, there's no priests like we know. They're back at the other one, and they're doing their thing and making those animal sacrifices and such for for, uh, what do you call it, uh, the sins. In both the tabernacle of Moses and the temple, only the high priest, remember, could even get into God's presence once a year. And it was a special kind of exception. God says, okay, one of you can come in once a year, only after all of these cleansing rites and sacrifices representing the people. It doesn't seem to be the case in the tabernacle of uh, of David. But that's not the only unique thing about it. When we see through the Psalms, which were written about worship in the tabernacle of David, and where we get a ton of our messianic prophecies come from Psalms, okay? It's the first time we really start hearing a lot about Gentiles being able to come to God. It's the first time we really start hearing this kind of language, again, which would have really upset the Pharisees, because they weren't around then. But this is kind of one of the problems is, well, you know, he didn't mean that. Yet when he says things, uh, uh, the people of the nations assemble and the people of, and as the, as the people of the God of Abraham, so it's people, everybody else, just like the people from Abraham, uh, that's in, what is that, Psalm 47, 8 and 9. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham, for the kings of the earth belong to God. See, he's saying, man, everybody comes to God. You don't really have this type of language Talking about the other temples. It existed for this brief time. 
until the uh, temple that uh, Solomon constructed. Once that was completed, everything shifted back. David's dead. The temple's done. The ark is brought into the temple. They now don't, they, they, have, they have a curtain, but it's not a tent. They've got a curtain separating the holy from the holy of holies. They have all the laws are reinstated, and uh, God's glory came on into the temple. Uh, but after the temple's construction, some strange prophecies start coming up. All right? Prophecies about the Messiah, but not about the tabernacle of Moses, but about the tabernacle or the tent of David. In Amos chapter 9, verse 11 and 12, somebody in that read that for me. Amos 9, 11, and 12. In that day, I will restore David's fallen shelter. I will repair its broken walls and restore its ruins and will rebuild it as it used to be so that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do, all the, who will do these things. The word shelter is tent. Okay, David didn't build a temple. He didn't build a physical structure. Okay, he paid for it, and it was his idea. But Solomon built it. <laughs> um, and we'll talk about that here in just a second. But he goes, I'm going to restore David's tent, and all nations can come to it. In Isaiah chapter 16. Well, before we do that, keeping in mind, it's this passage in, in, in Amos, in Acts chapter 15. Remember they had the Jew, Jerusalem conference and the apostles are getting together and the elders in Jerusalem are getting together and they're trying to say, do we allow Gentiles to come into the church? You know, because up until really that kind of that point, it had been very controversial. Cornelius had just been uh, brought in and, and, and earlier by Peter. Paul's on the missionary. He's baptizing all kinds of Gentile people. People are getting all upset. Well, is this right? Should we do this? James quotes that verse and says, this is what Amos was talking about. It's happening right now. He's not saying the temple's getting restored or anything like that. He goes, David's, David's uh, uh, tent, David's tabernacle, this is what was happening. And, and James quotes that verse that we just read and saying, this is what's happening. All right, so... Isaiah 16, another prophecy. Somebody read verse 5. In love, a throne will be established. In faithfulness, a man will sit on it. One from the house of David, one who in judging seeks justice and speeds the cause of righteousness. Okay, now it says one in the house of David. This is something I was talking to Phyllis. I'm, I'm just more and more just totally losing confidence in the new NIV translation. It's not house. I looked it up. It's tent. It's tent. Don't interpret it for me. Translate it for me. Okay? But they're saying, oh, well, this means hell. No, it messes me up when I don't realize what he's really talking about. David had a house. He had a big palace. Okay? It's not what he's talking about here. All right? He's talking about, and then he's not talking about house metaphorically like from the family. It's a tent of David. Somebody's going, I'm going to, it's going to be established. Somebody's going to sit on that throne. They're going to judge who seeks justice. He's going to seek the cause of righteousness, another messianic prophecy. The tabernacle of Moses showed perfection needed to come into God's presence. Okay, no sin. 
no anything else. But the tabernacle of David showed the mercy of God. It was going to make it so that a way that everyone could have equal access to God's presence. And we're even going to see this later when Jesus dies on the cross. The moment of his death, one of the significant things that happened is, is the curtain in the temple is, is separated. This is no longer a separation. That this person, the house, the tent of David, it's been restored. That whole, everybody can get into God now. Everybody can have access to God. Here's just another little side note. I'm not even entirely sure God wanted a temple built. Okay? We always assume God wanted a temple built. The reality of life is it was David's idea in 2 Samuel 3. He, I think it's a great heart. Felt guilty. He goes, here I am. I'm in this big house. All this fanciness because he's the king. And God's got a tent. That's not right. I'm going to build him a temple. And Nathan goes, hey, sure, go for it because he's the king, right? That's what he wants to do. Later that night, Nathan has a dream. And God goes, nope, 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 nope. I don't want him building me a temple. Okay? We're going to build one. Have Solomon do it. And so Nathan goes back and tells Dave, great idea, but uh, your timeline's a little off. Your son's going to do it. Okay. But we always assume God wanted this. But what always happened is not necessarily what God always wanted. Like, for instance, if you remember back in, uh, what is it, 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come and, and, uh, and Samuel dies and they go, we need a king. And God's going, yeah, I, I'm your king. I'm the one who's been taking care of you guys for 300 years. Hello? And they go, no, we want to. And they actually say, I want to be like everybody else. We want to be like all these other nations. And God goes, okay. You want a king? You're going to get a king and everything that goes with it. Uh, that's what you want. It might have been, I don't know for sure, that God said, temple, I don't need a temple. The world is my temple. Even when Solomon dedicated the temple, he stated, this can't house God. God's not in this plate, you know. I mean, he even said, you know, I mean, it's a great showing of respect for God, etc., and so on and so forth. But God's going, what, what, I need a house, I need an address, I'm everywhere. I don't want church to be relegated to this address, okay? 1509 West John Street, Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. No, that's where our church is. But I have shared with people that, you know, ask about owning our own building and, you know, what is life? I said it's great. It's got a lot of advantages, a lot of conveniences. But one of the challenges is, is keeping us from thinking church is what happens at 1509 West John Street. That's right. Amen. That we, we, we associate this place with where God happens, church happens. And that's what happened over the next several hundred years. If we notice with Jerusalem and the temple, people are making pilgrimages to it. Everything is surrounding it. Everything involves that building. Because that was supposedly where God was, and God's going, no, I'm not there. I'm restoring something else, and I want all people to have access to me. All right. Another possible reason in the next 15 minutes. Let's just drop another little bombshell, but it's kind of fun. Okay. This is another handout. I didn't want to send it out until we got it out. This is called David's Deep Dark Secret. <laughs> the possibility that one of the other reasons David built his tabernacle, um, his, his tent, and one of the other reasons why David was not allowed into the Holy of Holies is because David was illegitimate. Okay? Again, didn't really consider this or even think about it. In 1 Samuel 16, 
Beginning in verse 1, you've got Nathan the prophet. I'm sorry, you got Samuel rather, not Nathan, but Samuel. Coming to, God says, I want you to go appoint a king. I don't like, I'm rejecting Saul. And so he goes, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And I want you to, it's going to be among one of his kids. It says there uh, that, that when, when he goes there, everybody is terrified. Because Sam is coming to town. They had an incredible respect and fear for this guy. Because he was a direct prophet representative of God. And then, of course, he comes to town. He says, let me see you boys. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have dinner until I find the one I want. They ask him in verse 4, you know, they're trembling. And they said, do you come in peace? It's an intimidation. And Jesse calls in all of his sons. Except one. Why do you not call him in? If this guy that you're afraid of, <laughs> you're trembling. You know, if... The president of the United States says, I'm coming to your house. Bring in all your family. You're going to bring them all in your family. You're going to say, okay, because this is a person of authority coming in. I know. I always do it for the president. Come on, it was a good joke. The, the point is, this guy could kill you if you didn't. Right. All right. <laughs> I mean, he, he, was, he was known. That's why they trembled. He goes, bring in all of them. Why wouldn't he do it? We said, well, he was young. He was out tending the sheep. I don't think so. I'm thinking, it's like, who are you to make that decision? I said, bring everybody. He would have brought him, unless he thought, well, that's not really one of my sons. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Traditionally, most believe that David was omitted because he was the youngest. But maybe, maybe not. Uh, Samuel, first, uh, well, we'll get down to that. Was he excluded because of that? Uh, I believe David actually provides the answer in Psalm 51. It's kind of an interesting thing with this David says in Psalm chapter 51. In verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Again, that's NIV, trans, not translation, interpretation. Mm -hmm. A direct word-for-word -word translation literally would be, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. That's an odd thing to say about mom. Okay? That's a weird thing. But that's, that's actually literally what it says. Now we think through, we, we kind of approach it. But again, what are we talking about? Remember when we first started talking about things, we said, we're talking about a culture on the other side of the planet some 3,000 years ago. We don't, can't necessarily impose our moral expectations on this culture. There were a lot of things going on back there that we today would go, how could they do that? Yes? It's interesting that also David had conceived a child with Bathsheba. Right. Uh, born in iniquity, as it were. As it were. Yeah. Yes. And we're going to continue going on. Um, it could have been poetic license. You're right. Or we could interpret it simply like it reads. Okay? It could have been just like that. David's mother conceived him in an act of sin. She committed adultery, or it was uh, 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 maybe Jesse was with a concubine, like Abraham did with, with his wife's servant. It could have been something like that. We don't know. Like I said, their moral standards were a bit different than ours, 
But it would explain why David was not initially included in that meeting with Samuel. And it would also explain that's another reason why you can't come into the temple. You can't even come into the holy place because of that. Um, There are other things, situation, I've got, you know, little side notes. We don't have a lot of time to get into it now. In Judges 11, it talks about a story about someone who uh, was conceived when his father had relations with a prostitute, but he was still brought into the family, but he was in the family, but he was not in the family. He was kind of kept, that was Jephthah. Uh, And then there was another one uh, going through here. I'm not going to get over that. Look in Psalm 69. He says, I'm a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. Psalm 69.5. Okay, again, this is kind of a weird thing to say. Something's not going on here. Now, we see, you know, some stress and strain. Remember when Dave's brother were all fighting the war? And Jesse said, hey, here, take, take him some food. So here comes your little brother bringing you lunch. Awesome. No, they're upset with him. They're like, what are you doing here? It's like, no, I'm glad. Oh, you brought me something to eat. No, what are you doing here? That verse I read, Psalm 69, uh, according to Strong's Dictionary, the, he, the Hebrew word for uh, I'm a foreigner to my family, uh, it, mean, it's, it actually the word means I'm turned aside from lodging. It was actually a person who had, it was actually used specifically from a person who was born from adultery, wow. a member of that family. It's a Hebrew word, zur, Z-U-R. I don't know if it's a Hebrew way of pronouncing it. But those people were not included in regular family activities. Wow. Okay? And so why does David say, hey, I'm a foreigner to my own family. I'm a stranger to my mother's children. Okay? Neither do we see, we don't see that hint of conflict between Jesse and David, but we see it between David and his brothers. Now, Psalm 69, that very same psalm is seen in Messianic prophecies. Okay, well, yeah, we're going to get to Joseph. Well, that, not that Joseph, but we're going to get on to Jesus. Jesus, remember we talked about this at Christmas. By all physical observations, was an illegitimate child as well. We know about the virgin birth. We know about the angel. Joseph knew about it. How many other people in the community think? do you think bought that story? Zero. Exactly. People in the community did not, but they go, oh no, we know, we know what really happened. So Jesus is very much like David. Jesus had brothers and sisters, but they were Mary and Joseph's kids. Jesus might have been Mary and Joseph, could have been Mary and somebody else. We just don't know. And if it was Mary and Joseph, it was even Mary and Joseph before they got married. This would have been something that hung around Jesus' neck for the rest of his life. That's right. And a lot of people, we don't think about that because you don't really hear about it. But you've got to understand, this is a thing. Like David, you don't hear about it. But this could have been something. And so that messianic psalm, maybe Jesus felt like David in Psalm 69 when he said, Save me, O God, from the waters have come up to my neck. I sink into the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into the deep waters floods around me. I've worn out calling for help. My throat is parched. My eyes fail looking for my God. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. They seek to destroy me. I am forced to restore what I didn't steal. Not my fault. Not my fault what mom and dad may have done, but I'm paying the price for it. 
I don't know. But the tabernacle of David showed the mercy of God. He was going to make a way for all to have equal access to God's presence because Jesus' blood. The other tabernacle showed the separation of man and God. David's showed connection. And in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 18, illegitimate sons would become children of God, even using that phrase. For we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, whether we were born, quote-unquote, into the family, or we come in the other way. Now, is any of this solid proof? Did it? No. There's a lot of things that kind of point to it, and I think about it, and I go, get to know Jesus a little bit. Part of who he was, first of all, he was a representation of not the religious strictness. And therefore, that's what caused a lot of the conflict with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus was that reputation of accepting the unacceptable, like Matthew, like the woman in adultery, like the Samaritan woman, like the tent of David, which let's just keep quiet. Let's just pretend that one didn't happen. That's why we've never heard of it. Then you start digging around and you go, what is this phrase? What is this phrase? Where did this come from? Where did David do all of this worshiping? I just always thought it was in the temple, but then I go, well, that doesn't work with the timeline. And you go, wow, David. And then they said that Jesus was going to restore the tent of David, which still God was at. It was just different. It wasn't set up to show the separation of God and man, but the bringing together of God and man. Amen. And then also just thinking about Jesus in his whole life, living with you know, at best case scenario, mom and dad couldn't wait till they got married and I got, and mom got pregnant. Worst case scenario, mom got pregnant with somebody else, but dad went ahead and married her because he's a great guy. Now, Jesus knows that's not true. Mary and Joseph knows that's not true. Everybody else assumes it's got to be one or the other. Just like anybody who takes God out of the picture, well, it's got to be one or the other. And Jesus had to live with that, just like maybe David had to. Don't know for sure, but it's quite possible. That David had to live. But you know what? It shows, lastly, of our Lord and through David or whatever, that it don't matter where you come from. It don't matter your background. It don't matter your history. It don't matter. None of that matters. You can come into the presence of God and be a child of God. And it's not about your birthright or your uh, ancestry or it's about all of these things. It's about you and God and Jesus opening up that way. All right, thank you very much, guys. We'll be next door in 15 minutes.